0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, we come before the word of God this morning. And even in one verse, you've got so much to teach us. It's so rich, so deep. There's so much to receive from the inspired and the inerrant word of God. And we pray the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would be showing us more of the grace in Christ that is enjoyed by all who trust in him. And so use our time this morning uh, to worship and praise your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how do you greet people? Have you ever thought about that question? Do you have a certain greeting uh, that you typically use when you greet others? I guess it really depends, right? depends on if you're greeting somebody in person, or if you're greeting somebody maybe in a letter, uh, or via email, or if you're texting someone. Do you even use greetings when you text? I don't know. The, the letters are too small and I always get all hung up on the grammar. I hate texting. <laughs> getting too old for that. But um, I don't know. If you do a greeting in your texting or if you receive a greeting from me in your text, have you thought about the ways in which people greet one another? We use different greetings for different situations. And there's, there's really a lot that we can learn even from a simple greeting. So what can you learn from a greeting? Some of the greetings that we typically use. Well, you can tell how well you know somebody, right? Somebody may say, hey, good to see you again. Assumes that they already know the person, right? Or if they greet somebody by saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. Assumes they don't know the person. Or if you're like me, you've forgotten when you met them. You can tell about the occasion from a simple greeting. If Somebody says, Sends you a letter, and at the at the heading it says to whom it may concern. You can pretty much assume it's going to be some kind of formal letter, some maybe a business letter, or if it says dear satellite TV customer, you can toss that one. It's probably a solicitation. You can even tell where somebody's from from a greeting. You know, some people greet with aloha or good day or top of the morning to you, or if you're from the south, how y'all doing? Love that one. You don't have to have more than one person there in order to have the second person plural y'all. There's a lot you can tell, even from a simple greeting. And the same is true of the Bible. When we read these greetings in the Bible, there's so much that we can learn from them. Because the Bible consists of letters. It's not all letters, but there are numerous letters that make up our Bible. Letters written by the Apostle Paul written by John, Peter, and others. Much of your Bible are letters that were written to individuals and to churches. And they all begin with some kind of unique greeting. And like other first century letters, New Testament greetings were longer and richer in meeting than the greetings we typically use today, at least in our culture. The greetings we find in the New Testament typically consisted of three common elements. They identified the authors or the author who was writing the letter. They identified the recipient or the recipients of the letter. And this is where the biblical letters are different than the other letters in the first century. The third element common amongst New Testament greetings was they reminded the readers of the gospel. And the greeting we have here in 1 Thessalonians is no different. It contains all three of those elements and although this is the shortest greeting that we have of Paul's letters, there's much that we can learn from this greeting here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1. So ra- rather than just passing over this, right? Cuz we could just jump right into the to the rest of the uh, the content here in chapter 1. I think so often we read the greetings in these little Little nuggets in scripture, and we just kind of leave gold on the ground, unmined. Well, rather than passing over it, let's turn to it. So, if you haven't turned there already, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and let's take time to consider what God has to teach us this morning from this very simple greeting from the Apostle Paul. You'll find it on page 986 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. So, what's in the identification of of the authors. Remember the three points. It identifies the authors, it identifies the recipients, and it reminds the readers of the gospel. So let's look and see what's in a greeting. What's in the identification of the authors? Well, the first thing we notice whenever we look at verse 1 is we can tell who wrote the letter, right? You see that. Paul, Silvanus, which is another way of saying Silas, and Timothy. These are uh, the authors of the letter. All three were involved in the church plant. We saw that last Sunday. And all three were concerned about the well-being of the Thessalonians. However, the actual content of the letter was virtually all from the pen of the Apostle Paul. So that may seem odd to you. Why is it that if Paul was mainly the one who wrote this, why is it that he identifies Timothy and Silas as co-writers? Why identify them at the outset of the letter? Well, thinking about this this week, I think there's a couple of good reasons for that. And first, simply put, is that they contributed to the content in some way. They weren't writing it like the Apostle Paul was writing it. But we know from chapter 3 that much of what Paul writes in this letter uh, is in response to the report he received from Timothy. If you recall, remember, Paul was quickly... Uh, torn away from the Thessalonians by persecution shortly after the church was founded. And he was continued to be driven further and further away from the church. And he continued to think about and pray about and long for this congregation. And he sent Timothy to go and to investigate, to go and encourage them to, to get updates on how they were doing. And Timothy brought that report back to the Apostle Paul. So certainly Timothy had some... A contribution to the content here, but I'm sure that Silas did as well. We don't exactly know how Paul wrote this letter. Uh, he probably wrote it from Corinth, and it may have been that he wrote the letter in consultation with Silas and Timothy. Maybe they read it before he sent it. But I think there's a more important point that we can glean from this greeting. What can we learn from the identification of the of the uh, senders of this letter? I think the reason Paul includes Silas and Timothy, I think, is to make a point. And I think the point is this. It's not all about Paul. I mean, if anybody could say, hey, this is my show. I'm the author. I'm the man. I mean, surely it would have been Paul, right? I mean, when you read the account of Paul's life, it's It's amazing. And as we have just seen, if you, read, if you read the letter, you can tell that he's mainly the one who's writing it. But you see, Paul didn't do that. In fact, it's, it's interesting, he doesn't even refer to himself in the greeting as an apostle, like he does in some of his other letters. He places himself on equal footing, as it were, with his co-pastors who founded the church and who were caring for the church. And I think there's a very important lesson that we should learn from the identification of the senders here. And it's this. Gospel ministry isn't a one-man show. Gospel ministry isn't a one-man show. There's a real temptation, I think, for those in ministry to want to be the main focus and to do things in their own way. They call the shots. The buck stops with them. Now, we're all tempted to that, aren't we? We're all prideful people. We all struggle with this. But I think there's a particularly strong temptation for those who are in ministry, those either in pastoral ministry or serving in the church in some way. Maybe they're teaching Sunday school, maybe they're on a committee. But I think there's a particularly strong temptation for leaders in the church to want to approach their ministry as if they're running the show. It's very easy for a pastor or a ministry leader, when God begins to bless what they're doing, it's easy for us to begin attributing to ourselves the things that God is doing in and through us. Right? How easily we'll begin to take credit for the things that God is doing through us, as if it were us making those things happen. Instead of focusing on the individual, our focus should be on our extraordinary God, doing extraordinary things through very ordinary Christians, through sinners. And I think the take-home for us as a church is twofold. On the one hand, I think we should beware of those pastors and those leaders, either here at this church or in the church more broadly, who make themselves the focus. There are so many... There's so many places you could go on TV and books, on the radio, to be hearing ministry leaders and pastors and influential people. Many of these people are very well known. They're very influential. And many of them are very good. But they're not all very good. And I think there's a warning for us, implied in the way that Paul addresses this congregation, that we need to pay special attention and listen very closely to how people... And those kinds of positions speak about their success. And if you don't hear them regularly attributing to God the success that they're experiencing, I just say run. Run from those people. There are so many warnings in Scripture about pride. And especially when it creeps up in pastoral ministry in some way, we need to be keenly aware of that. Pride goes before a what? A fall. And it would be folly to pursue that ourselves, but certainly folly to be pursuing others who are doing the same. We don't want to fall with them in that way. But then secondly, here at Zion, we can just celebrate the plurality of elders, as we call it. Pastoral ministry at Zion Reformed is not a one-man show. I'm not the only pastor here. I am a co-pastor. I'm a co-elder. And I am delighted to be able to share the office with other brothers who are gifted by God and called by God to be shepherding you as a church. We work together as a team. And there's nothing of a, of a one-man show here in this church. And I would just ask you to continue to pray for that. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leaders. Pray for those who are serving in various ways in Sunday schools and on committees and on Bible studies. Pray for our deacons, that we would be intently focused on seeing us as part of a whole, and recognizing that when God blesses us, we don't take credit for that. We give the glory and the praise and the honor to Jesus Christ, who by His Spirit is doing those things in and through us. So there's a lot we can learn from how Paul identifies the authors here in this letter. But there's also much we can learn from how he identifies the recipients. Look back with me at verse 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. So what's in the identification of the recipients? Well, this is a greeting. Okay, This is not a theological treatise. Paul is not launching into verse after verse, chapter after chapter, unpacking a theology here. But this greeting does assert an incredibly rich, incredibly important theological truth about the church of Jesus Christ. Namely, our union with God in Christ. Or for short, our union with Christ. If we were to ask the biblical writers, if we had an opportunity to sit down and have an interview with one of the biblical writers, just pick one at random, and we ask them for a succinct Bottom line, answer to the question, what does it mean to be saved? I think the resounding answer from whoever you pick would simply be this. To be saved is to be united with God in Christ. Salvation is not fundamentally conversion, being born again. It's not fundamentally what the Bible calls justification where God declares us to be righteous. It's not fundamentally about the propitiation, the the way in which Jesus on the cross bore the wrath of God against us for our sins. It's not fundamentally that. It's not fundamentally glorification. This wonderful truth that one day our bodies will be made new. They won't suffer any longer. They won't sin any longer. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's not fundamentally about that. Now listen, all of these things are wonderful, essential truths of Christianity. Don't get me wrong. We are without hope if we don't have justification by faith. If we don't have the Spirit's work of conversion. If we don't have a resurrection to look forward to. Paul says we are most of all to be pitied. These are wonderful, essential truths, but listen, these are benefits of salvation. We saw that in our catechism question. They're benefits of something even more fundamental, even something more vital. The essence of salvation isn't what we might call the results of salvation, but rather the relationship. From which all these blessings flow. The fundamental essence of salvation is our union with Jesus Christ. The theologian John Murray, who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary many years ago, put it this way. Speaking about union with Christ, he said union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It isn't simply a phrase of the application of redemption. It underlines every aspect of redemption. That's why another well-known theologian by the name of Anthony Hokemus said it this way. He said, once you have your eyes opened to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. And I think he's right. Let me just give you a few biblical examples that underline the fundamental importance of union with God in Jesus Christ. Let's just take some of the some of the parts of our salvation. Let's take election, the ways in which God chooses us in Christ. Listen to Ephesians one four through six. Paul writes, "He that is God chose us in Him," and we're going to hear that phrase a number of times in Him. In Christ, that means in union, in relationship with Jesus. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. That is, through relationship with Him. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Take regeneration, the way in which God causes us to be born again in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's conversion. Listen the what he says. Together with Christ, in union with him. Take justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a a, a verse celebrated, celebrated by those who treasure the doctrine of justification by faith on the righteousness of Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it, though. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, that is the father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sanctification, the ways in which we're made holy in Christ. Listen to the illustration Jesus gives in John 15 of our union with Him. This is a very helpful illustration to think through how this happens. Jesus says in John 15, verses 4 through 5, Abide in me and I in you. That's union. Is all about Jesus. Like a branch connected to a vine, the life giving and the life sustaining sap only flows to us when we are connected to, whenever we're united with Jesus. Do you see now why it makes sense that apart from Him, we can do nothing? If you don't have Christ, you don't have any of those benefits that we just read about. No election. No conversion. No justification. No sanctification. No glorification. No hope. If you don't have Christ. So go back to the original question. What does it mean to be saved? The bottom line is this. I get Jesus. Is that how you think about salvation? Is it fundamentally a person? The bottom line is that we have a never-ending, all-satisfying relationship with our Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Or, to quote Jesus again, John seventeen three: this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I love the way John Piper's put this. He said, what good is forgiveness of sins? What good is that? It's only a good news for you if it gets you Jesus. Right? What good is that you have an election in Christ before the foundation of the world if the end is it that you get him? Right. What good is growing as a Christian daily and weekly, striving for holiness? What good is that if it's not bringing you closer and closer to Jesus? What good is Christianity if it doesn't give us Christ? From beginning to end, every part of salvation flows from our union with God in Christ. That's why Paul, even in passing, identifies the recipients of the letter as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the source of blessing that we receive in the gospel. And that's what Paul reminds us of in the third, part, the third and final part of this greeting. Look back with me one more time at verse 1. He's identified the senders. He's identified the recipients, but now he's going to remind us again of the gospel. Grace to you and peace. Very simple words. This is the shortest way Paul writes this expression in all of his letters. Every greeting of every New Testament letter that Paul wrote includes this phrase. Grace and peace. It's not just a cordial thing. Don't just pass over this. Every letter Paul wrote, we have in the New Testament, includes the phrase grace and peace. Sometimes it's written a bit longer. Sometimes he'll throw in mercy. But not one of his letters omits this. It's not just a convention of his day. He wouldn't have brought up Microsoft Word and brought up one of the form letters. It wouldn't have been there. Paul intentionally adds this to his letters for a reason. Grace is. And peace, just simply shorthand for all of the gospel benefits that flow to us from our union with God in Christ. Just shorthand for the gospel. At the very outset of his letters, Paul reminds his readers of the grace and the peace that belong to them in Christ through the gospel. Of course, grace is that unmerited, and, and when you think about it, when you think about sin, and the ways in which we've treated God and others, I think it's even more than unmerited. It's demerited favor. We have done everything not to deserve God's favor, but yet we receive it in what we call grace. And he speaks of peace, which is a a wholeness, a completeness. He's getting at the unshakableness of the relationship that we have with God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Let's, let me just show you, and because he's not unpacking all of this in the greeting. There's much that's assumed, much yet to be unpacked in the letters. Well, let me take you one place where he does unpack it. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 Listen to how grace and peace aren't simply a little cordial formula. But brothers and sisters, everything hinges on grace and peace. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the union again. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the gospel. Now, when he says peace, he's not talking about temporary ceasefire. From time to time, you'll hear about peace and Uh, with Israel and the surrounding nations. It's not peace when at any moment the rocket could come over the wall, when war can break out, when there's constant fear that tension and conflict is going to erupt. That's not peace. Now, when Paul says peace, he's referring to the Old Testament word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before. Shalom, wholeness, completeness. There's nothing lacking in the relationship between God and His people. And notice that's what it is. Look at verse 1. We have peace with God. That's the fundamental problem of sinners, is they don't have peace with God. But Jesus, in Him, through the Gospel, gives us peace. And that's how we enter grace. And look at what Paul says. The grace in which we stand... Are you standing as a Christian in grace this morning? It's not something that can be earned. How do we receive it? How do we get access to this grace? We obtain it by faith, Paul says. There's only one source of grace and peace, and it's God in Christ. So when you read the other letters... We'll get to it in 2 Thessalonians when he says, grace to you and peace. And then he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the same thing here. He just put it in terms of union with Christ. It's only by union with Jesus Christ that we receive lasting peace and un- and demerited favor from God by his grace. So what's in a greeting? What's integrating? Well, a lot, as we've just seen, right? When we take the time to dig deep into God's word, we'll find all kinds of valuable, edifying nuggets on which our souls can just be nourished that show us more of the gospel of grace and peace that we have through Christ. So as we close this morning, let me just ask, do you have this grace and this peace this morning? Do you have grace and peace this morning? Now, I'm not saying, are you trying to earn grace this morning? Are you trying harder today than you did last week to get the grace? That's not what I'm asking. Not do you feel inner peace. Not do you clear your mind and and get rid of the things of the world. I'm not talking about that. It's not what Paul's talking about. We're not talking about making your peace with God. I'm asking, have you received it? Have you received it from the only place it can be found and in the only way in which it can be received? Has God given you grace and peace this morning? Well, there's only one source. Your only hope of grace and peace is Christ. To be united with him. That's the only way to receive it. To be bound to Christ, connected with Christ, like a branch connected to the vine. To be united with Jesus by faith. Well, let me just say to you, if you haven't received that this morning, if you don't know what it's like to live day by day, free from the fear that the peace you have with God is going to change tomorrow, and I'm sure there's many who maybe live that way. Well, is, is he still going to be for me after what I've done today? Do I still have peace with him in light of all the things that I've done? Let me just say to you, don't live in fear of God in Christ. Perfect love casts out fear, and that was demonstrated for us on the cross. You want to know why the peace isn't going away? Because Jesus is our peace. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. He is our peace because he took the wrath of God due to us in our place. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's paid for. It's done. And it's free. But it's only in Christ. So do you have it this morning? Do you have Christ? And if you've received him, if you have Jesus, if he's your Lord and Savior, if you've got a relationship with him by faith, well then I want to tell you something. These letters, these are written for you. You, beloved in Christ, are the recipients of these letters wonderful promises of the gospel that are just outlined for us page after page you are the recipients of the exhortations to to live for the glory of Christ so are you using the letters to grow in your your longing for Jesus in your living for King Jesus are you reading the text for all its worth are you digging deep to get those nuggets Are you meditating upon every word God gives us? Well, may the Lord grant that we would all be digging deep into God's word through this series as as we grow together in Christ, in our longing for him, and in our living for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. We ask... For Jesus' sake, that we would be looking at salvation in a Christ centered way. That we would be reading the Bible and hearing the word preached and growing in our longing for more Jesus. And that that would play itself out in lives lived for Him. That we'd be taking up our cross daily for Jesus. And that we would be bringing others to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is such good news. And people desperately need to hear it. So please would you use this sermon and would you use the sermons in the coming weeks. And in all of the ways that you grow your people to advance the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that more people in our sphere of influence would be united to Jesus, bearing fruit, but seeing him as their all-satisfying, everlasting grace and peace. That they can enjoy forever as they give him the praise and the honor and the glory. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.